welcome to the next installment of Ortho Real Podcast. Today we are talking about custom implants for knee and hip surgery. Uh, it's a topic of interest to me as I've had a strong interest in this technology over the last several years. I have used uh, these types of implants many, many times. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure for any biases, I, as noted, am a user of this system. Uh, the company that we're talking about today is Conformus that manufactures custom implants and the systems associated with them. I have done some limited uh, teaching for this company in labs for other surgeons and in some context of that nature. Uh, I do not have any uh, royalties associated with this implant or anything of that nature, but I uh, have worked with them in the past. So uh, notable in terms of keeping this unbiased and keeping this real if we're on the Ortho Real podcast. Joining us today from Conformus are John Slayman and Farzan Kakani. Uh, John is uh, an engineer and now chief technology officer at Conformus. He has been involved in the design of orthopedic implants for well over 30 years. Farzan, also uh, with a strong engineering uh, background, but is involved in the sales uh, and marketing uh, for this company. So we're excited to have these two gentlemen and talk about custom implants and what they're doing and why and what the future holds for this technology. So for those of you that are interested or potentially have any interest in learning about custom implants, uh, thanks for stopping in and uh, listening to this podcast. Uh, joining us today uh, are John Slayman and Farzan Kakani. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Good morning and welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks, man. Thanks for having us. Uh, appreciate having you guys here, and I hopefully uh, have done enough in the way of introduction. Uh, but both of you have been with Conformus for quite some time. Uh, both of you, uh, Farzan, or you're on the sales side now. Uh, John is the uh, chief technology officer. Both of you, though, coming uh, to this with engineering backgrounds, um, can can one or both of you tell us the story about Conformus and about custom implants and, and what's what's the origin of this thing? Yeah, um, Conformus was founded in 2004 by a um, uh, radiologist. Uh, his name is Philip Lang. Um, and, and although not a founder, the first employee's name was, uh, Daniel Spinus, who was actually a, an MD, but, um, was much more interested in software. And so he went off after his MD and studied software, uh, and be, became, uh, developed the foundation for what all of conformist software is today. Um, they started, the first implants that they introduced developed and introduced to the market was an um, interpositional device um, made out of cobalt chrome, and it was MRI-based. Uh, and we developed and marketed that product up until about 2010 or so. Um, like most intervention, uh, sorry, interpositional devices, it, it was a, a bit of a hit or miss in terms of um, patient satisfaction and clinical outcome. Um, but Shortly thereafter, um, that product went to market. We developed, we started developing partial implants, which, which um, a unicompartmental, and then a bicompartmental, which were the first truly patient-matched 
implant systems in the world uh, in, in terms of a system. Custom implants have been made for many, many years, going back to probably the late 1960s. But those were typically used for severe deformity and, um, and severe revision situations, where these were patient-matched primary orthopedic devices, which is distinctly different, which has been done in the past. Um, and then the partial knee implants, we evolved into developing a total knee, which we started working on in 2009, and that's become the backbone of the company now um, for 10 years. We introduced the, the iTotal cushion retaining uh, to the market in 2011, and we introduced to the market in 2015, the iTotal posterior stabilized implant system. Uh, Barzan, I'm sure you could fill a lot of gaps in there. Uh, sure, that, that's, a, that's a great synopsis. Um, I would actually probably go back an additional four years before 2004. Um, Philip Lang and Daniel Steinus, there was a, a company called Imaging Therapeutics uh, that uh, was a software company, looked at uh, x-rays in bulk and uh, picked out patients, osteoporotic patients. So I think that was the, really the genesis of uh, some of the, uh, the core software that ended up translating and becoming and evolving into, uh, into conformist. Uh, you know, some people uh, <laughs> that have been familiar with the company over the years always ask, you know, why, why would you start with an interpositional spacer, go to a uni, a bicompartmental, and then a total? Uh, just given the market size, the, the, the most uh, you know, logical step would be to start with a, with a total knee implant. And um, I think that has a lot to do with the, with the genesis of the company and the history of it. Um, you know, initially, uh, the, the company was looking at addressing, um, you know, specific point defects, uh, where you could take uh, metal and replace worn cartilage, uh, in, you know, in specific areas. And that, uh, kind of morphed and became a, an interpositional spacer and then eventually a unicompartmental and bicompartmental. So, so we, we actually went, uh, the, uh, down the path of, uh, you know, knee replacements uh, a little bit backwards, uh, starting out with uh, more conservative uh, implants, and then uh, and then eventually to a total knee system. But you know that is true, Arson. But I also believe that although it was probably backwards to what any other orthopedic company would do, we cut our teeth on the partial knees, and we learned a lot about how to apply imaging technologies and refining our our software in extracting the shapes and, and designing uh, patient-matched orthopedic implants. I think that if we had started with the total, we would have made a lot of mistakes on a total, and we may not even have survived today, whereas we learned our way up to the total name. By the time we got the total in 2011, it was a pretty solid product, and, and not to say that it didn't evolve substantially, and it continues to evolve today based on feedback from customers and and uh, things you see, but um, I, I'm actually happy we did it the way we did it. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. It's, uh, it's well said. I don't think any of it would have been possible without the, the, the confluence of, uh, you know, additive manufacturing technology, the software technology to be able to actually handle 
the the workload, the tasks of, of designing a customer plant, as well as advances on the orthopedic side for to make all of this possible. But uh, I, I agree with you. I think uh, it definitely served the company well. Um, when you, you know, an off-the-shelf the implant is, is effectively designed uh, to average value. So um, engineers will gather a bunch of uh, anthropomorphic data and try to make a limited number of sizes fit as many patients as possible. Uh, and that, that's traditionally the, has been the approach uh, with, with most uh, orthopedic companies. But, you know, taking that, that each individual patient as a unique problem where you're designing a unique solution for is an extremely complicated process. And, and I agree with you, John. I think um, starting out with partial needs definitely serves us well uh, to, to and, and bake the technology for us to be able to uh, really, you know, create something special on the, uh, on the total knee side. Okay, so y'all y'all have given me a ton of places to jump off here uh, already and talk about with uh, interpositional arthroplasty and, and maybe coming from the background of of the the uni spacer and some implants like that. Where for for a patient or somebody who's not in industry, are, are we talking about basically a a spacer device, a little a little piece of metal or something else that that sort of pushes into the joint and and holds it open where there there was a, a defect or missing cartilage. The, um, the, the brand was called Iforma, the interpositional device that Conformus had. And essentially what it was, yes, it was a metal, like a small metal plate, but it was not, it, it was contoured to the patient's natural um, soft tissue geometry. This was an MRI-based device. And so it was essentially a replacement for a failed meniscus. The meniscus had to be removed in order to use this device, the Iforma. Uh, and then it would, would be literally pressed in, into the knee, taking up this space that the meniscus had previously um, taken up. Uh, it was metal cobalt chrome. And it, when it worked well, it worked very well. But it was difficult to predict what patients would do well with it and what patients would not do well with it. So, so the idea to, to start here and to start working on some of this, were these, these guys, um, do, uh, Dr. Lang and uh, the other originators, as you spoke about, John, there was some, some market or some uh, small niche of custom implants going back for a long time. Were they sort of riffing on the available technology here of, okay, now we've got better imaging, we've got better software, this, we're going to let this technology see what it can do with these orthopedic products, and so they decided to grow it in that direction, or, or what What was the thought here? Yeah, well, the, um, the, so the, the founders, Wang and Sinus, I mean, they really thought out of the box. I mean, having one of them being an interventional radiologist and the other one being a software developer, and Philip Lang had actually, um, when he was doing his postdoc, had actually worked um, or supported some research. Now we're talking in the m- mid to late 90s now um, of a, a, a custom orthopedic company that was based in Sacramento. And, and the name of that company is escaping me right now. And they would build um, language support them in some research using CT scans, but they were manufacturing custom implants 
to repair complex revisions where the previous implant had failed and there was a lot of bone erosion or possibly fractured, you know, femurs and fractured tibias and things like that. And they're making truly customized implants, um, one-offs. Um, and they took, the, so then Lang, I guess, took that basic idea um, working with sinus in the software field, saying, you know, if we could, if we could extract patient matched data information from their bones and then build an implant that was shaped, not just size, which is a real fundamental difference, but shaped to the patient's natural geometry, maybe we could get better outcomes than the off-the-shelf implants, which is Bars and set are very generic in nature, very engineered kind of shapes that sometimes you get the right size, but rarely you get the right shape with an off-the-shelf implant. So that was their fundamental premise, um, and it, they started it with the I-Forma interpositional, um, and then it evolved into the um, I-Uni, and then the I-Duo, which is the bicompartmental device. Uh, and their idea, their, their premise, that probably dates back to the late 1990s turns out to be true. That if you manufacture, if you design an implant that is based on the patient's natural geometry, not their size, but their actual bone shape, then you will get an implant that has got better outcomes, better patient satisfaction, and equal um, survivorship to the more traditional methods. You know, keep it, keeping in mind that we're providing customized shapes to the patient's bone, but all of the materials that we use, all of the fixation methods to the bone that we use have been proven over time. So we didn't want to abandon anything that has proven long-term uh, to work well in joint reconstruction procedures we only wanted to change the shape of the of the um, of the way the implant articulates, the way it moves, based on the patient's natural geometry. And if you look at our all of our published literature now, peer-reviewed published literature on this, in virtually any criteria that you would want to establish, this implant system works better than any other total knee system on the market. So, I think what John has, has just said is so important, uh, and, and I want to emphasize a couple of points. We, we from from the very beginning uh, of uh, you know of conformance, we wanted to stay true to what orthopedics had taught us. We, we wanted to make sure we stayed with, with known material, with known fixation, with uh, you know the the idea of a mechanical alignment, which uh, I think is definitely worth uh, getting into more because. Um, we we actually positioned the the, uh, the final implants in the kinematic alignment, but but uh, the benefits of a mechanical alignment. But you know the the benefits of the system. We wanted to make sure we, we were reaping um, the advantages of creating a unique solution for each individual patient. So the fit is extremely important, as John said. But the magic, the secret sauce. Uh, and many of the benefits come from respecting the anatomy, the shape of the anatomy. 
And and I think that's that's really important to highlight because it's it's it's, it's very it's conceptually it's very easy to grasp how you know optimizing the fit for a patient uh, has has a number of benefits, and those are all true, and and, and we do uh, benefit from those. But but respecting the shape and and the geometry of of the anatomy is is also extremely important. So with shape matching and with with matching a patient's normal uh, anatomic shape, and you know, obviously, I have thoughts on this, but there's a, there's a little bit of a leading question here. Um, what does that make better? Is it is it tolerated better uh, by the patient's body because of the shape? Is it all ligament isometry and balance and how that knee moves and, and how that makes it feel? What what do we at least? What's the prevailing theory of of the advantage to that shape match? Let me take that part, and then you can sure. fill it in. Yeah, so um, the prevailing theory is that the shape, uh, the, preserving the patient's natural geometry, preserves their natural soft tissue isometry. Uh, and, and so, therefore, um, you, the surgeon does not need to modify their soft tissues in order to make a, an, a weird shape, which is the off-the-shelf knee. Uh, function, you know, properly, and I use properly in quotes because what they need to do is modify the patient's ligaments in order to make the odd shape work correctly. Surgeons, uh, for many, many years, have, have been argued that knee replacement surgery is a soft tissue procedure. It's not a carpentry procedure. And I say carpentry because you have to cut bone in order to install an orthopedic implant. And for an off-the-shelf knee, it is true that it is a soft tissue procedure because you have to modify the soft tissues in order to function properly with the non-anatomic shape of the implant. Put an anatomic implant, anatomically shaped implant, into a patient. You do not need to modify their soft tissues, their medial, lateral, posterior cruciate ligaments, in order for the shape to function properly. And therefore, what you get is a total knee feels like the patient's original um, anatomic joint when they were younger. When you modify the soft tissues, you impart all kinds of new, uh, I'm not, I don't think I'd call them complications, but they're big compromises. Uh, you, get, you end up with patients that have the uh, proprioception problem when they're walking down the stairs. Their knees sometimes feel unstable with an off-the-shelf knee, and that's because it's difficult to achieve perfect balance when you start cutting ligaments in the knee. If you don't have to cut them, and you only preserve the, the natural shape, and oh, by the way, the natural shape that we can do correction to for the disease because um, deformity does take place in the heart tissue, and we have some secret algorithms that are based, based on sound science, peer-reviewed published literature, to teach us how to recreate what the patient's natural shape is in the event that it has been, that it's been um, diseased and changed its shape, and that all of that together uh, preserves the patient's natural isometry, therefore a natural feeling. So I want to unpack this a little bit for uh, patients that might be listening or potential patients. I think uh, surgeons and people in industry are 
are picking up everything you're laying down. But when we talk about, as you said, knee replacement is a soft tissue operation. If this was just a matter of getting implants to cover the ends of the bone, putting metal and plastic where cartilage was worn away and having it fit well and line up pretty straight, um, we would have had this knocked decades ago and we would have nearly 100% satisfaction, um, I think, because you can, you know, surgeons are, are, are largely good at this and can do that and can do that reproducibly. Um, but, but a gap here is how do patients feel, what is their satisfaction, and when we talk about ligament isometry, we're just talking about balance, how the knee feels when it moves. Is it too tight in some positions and too loose in other positions? Does it feel weird? Does it hurt? Um, does it um, irritate the soft tissues? Uh, those sort of sorts of things. Um, so I, I think you've, you've spoken to that, and I hope that's a, a fair description of it. Um, so maybe one or both of y'all, can we talk about patient satisfaction with, with knee replacement and why, why custom? Why might we do this, and, and what is the evidence that it's better? Sure. Uh, so, in order to to uh, to create a solution, um, you need to have a problem, a well-defined problem. And in, in orthopedics and knee replacement uh, surgery, it's it's widely accepted that about twenty percent of patients are not completely satisfied with their outcomes, the procedural outcomes. So, that that is the the, the problem that we're trying to create a solution for. And, and conceptually, when you look at a knee, a knee is far from uh, symmetric. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at the bony anatomy, there, there is a difference between your condyle, between uh, the left side and right side of your femur. Uh, if you model uh, the, the mechanics of, uh, of the joint and, and imagine uh, springs or, or rubber bands as the soft tissue that, that helps facilitate uh, motion, kinematics, um, it's very easy to, to look at that asymmetric joint and then look at the implants that are currently used today, uh, which are widely symmetric in nature, and say, well, that, there's, there's clearly a, a, uh, a mismatch between the, the, what is currently being used uh, operatively and the, the uh, normal anatomy. So um, what conformists uh, believes is that a substantial part of that dissatisfaction rate among patients can be attributed to the implant design. Certainly there's, there's a host of, uh, of factors. There's, there's all the clinical factors. There's certainly the patient and, and their commitment to, to rehabilitation and, and getting better. But a portion of that uh, can be attributed to the implant. And, and that's where um, the idea of, of personalizing and making the implant match that, that patient and what John said is so important about our, uh, our algorithm, our, our proprietary algorithm for correcting um, deformity, correcting for wear and, and the, the, you know, the evolution of the pathology. Um, so it, from, from that perspective, it's the, the problem was that there is a, a certain uh, percentage of the population that is not entirely happy with the outcomes of their knee replacement surgery. And what can we do uh, in, from, from an industry perspective in terms of the implant design to help improve that, to, to increase that, that satisfaction rate? It's well said, Barbara. Yeah, and I, I, I can certainly, you know, attest to that as, as we, you know, obviously have a lot, 
a lot and a very high percentage of great outcomes with knee replacement. Uh, but it's clinically not at the same level that we get with hip replacement and, and that percentage of folks that aren't happy, even though, gosh, we think everything went really well. Uh, it's, it's vexing to try to figure those out and what the, what the solutions are and how we can make things better for those patients. Where are we at? As hey, Matt, can I, oh, can absolutely. I, um, can I offer up an, uh, offer up a, an analogy on the hip? So yes, patient satisfaction in hip replacement is extremely high and it's very common for hip replacement surge, uh, patients to literally forget what size of, size of their hip. Did they have their left hip done or their right hip done? I, um, I actually, um, this was about 10 years ago or so, I, um, a very famous leading orthopedic surgeon that I know had a hip replacement done. And it was now about a year post-op, and I said, Larry, how's your, how's your hip doing? And he said, I had to stop and think for two seconds to remember, was it my left hip or was it my right hip? And this was an, is an individual who was at the high end of orthopedic replacement and in hip surgery. So um, patients with hip replacements, they forget what, they forget they have a hip. The reason, my hypothesis for that is this, that your, the human hip is a ball and socket. The orthopedic replacement for the human hip is a ball and socket, round on round. So the... Um, the the um, analog to the human hip is a nearly identical shape and size, where in the human knee, it's a highly uh, um, unusual shape. And everybody's knee is very different. There are no two that are alike. So when you put a standardized off-the-shelf implant into a very irregular shape, you're changing all of the balances. You're changing just the way the thing moves. That's why, in my hypothesis, that's why in the human knee with an off-the-shelf knee, um, it's highly, it, it, the satisfaction is much lower. If you look at in partial knee replacement, even off-the-shelf partial knee replacements have a much higher satisfaction rate than total knee replacements do. And the reason for that is, I believe, is because all of the soft tissues are preserved and rarely have to be manipulated in order to make it partially work properly. Take the patient match conformist total knee, which has got the right shape for the patient, preserves their soft tissue isometry, it is more likely to feel like their preoperative or pre-diseased knee. I think that's a great way to put it, and I I explain it similarly to patients. And, and I just, in my estimation, a ball and socket is a less complex joint. Um, you've got this uh, with a knee; it's it's a whole different thing with a, a multitude more ligamentous structures around it, different planes of motion. There's some, there's obviously flexion and extension, but there's some component of rotation, and that occurs at different uh, points in that arc of motion. Um, and it's just uh, a lot more complex in its in its function, if you will, than that ball and socket joint. But I think your statement about what we're matching and what we're getting back to with the hip replacement is is well put. Also, um, with that said, I, th- I think it's uh, well worth 
to, to mention that we also have a hip replacement uh, portfolio product. And internally, we, uh, we characterize it as we, we developed a knee system for the patient because the joint is so much more complex. Uh, on the hip replacement side, we, we joined this, we designed the system for, for the surgeon to make the procedure easier and more reproducible. Uh, that's a great way to put it. Uh, when that when results are so good for for hip replacement, you're certainly after efficiency and reproducibility and taking those outcomes and making them happen. You know, every single time and getting us closer to a hundred percent with things. Um, what do you consider your 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 best uh, outcome studies at this point? What's what's the what's the proof uh, for the custom knee so far? Um, I, well. You know, you can look at patient outcomes and you can look at survivorship. I'm, I'm going to pick survivorship first. So there are two um, joint registries uh, that are kind of reference points, one being the uh, British Joint Registry. And we've been in that. Our total knee has been registered with that um, for now about eight years or so. And what they do is uh, this is a, a British... Federal government, it's federal government subsidized, but it's an independent group that basically follows from implantation patients with the total knee, uh, or they, they follow all, all joints, actually. And our seven-year survivorship for the eye total in the British registry uh, is 98.4%, I believe. And for the same time period, the average off-the-shelf implant is um, uh, about 97.5%. So we're, we're, we're statistically and substantially better than the other implant systems that are out there. Uh, in the uh, American um, Joint Registry, which is much newer, it's only been around for about five or six years, we've got similar survivorship. That is very, very high. It's in the 98-plus percent um, of survivorship. Reported. Um, we've got several um, published papers on patient outcomes that look at patient satisfaction, which I think is a, a very critical one. And um, these are now peer-reviewed papers, and they're comparative to um, they're side by side with other off-the-shelf implants at the same um, time, or concurrently, I should say. Um, and we're about um, one-third greater patient satisfaction on average in those studies compared to the off-the-shelf implants. So most of these studies... Thanks, so- John. I think... Go ahead, Farzan. Sorry. I just wanted to add, in, in today's um, environment, I think you also have to uh, talk about the economics of, of joint replacement surgery. And um, one of our most recent uh, papers, an abstract that was presented at Orthopedic Research Society just this year out of the University of Washington, uh, did a, and we weren't really even aware that, that this, this study was, was being performed, but they did a, a head-to-head comparison between Conformis and uh, two other implant companies, two of the largest implant companies. And uh, was one was done by uh, the one arm of the study was done by a single surgeon, and then there was a comparative done by a second surgeon. And what was really interesting is that that conformist did 
uh, performed economically when you added all the costs, the, the direct costs associated with the, uh, with the procedure, uh, was about $1,000 cheaper from one implant and $1,300 cheaper than the other implant. And, and I think there's a lot of um, hidden costs associated uh, in, in terms of the, the outcome, the, the rehabilitation, that uh, simply respecting the anatomy uh, adds all kinds of benefits in terms of outcome and, and, and uh, recovery that, uh, that directly lead to, to economic benefits. And I think in today's environment, you have to talk about the economics um, of, of the, the joint replacement uh, as well as the, the certainly the outcome. Yep, agreed, Arjun. In, in terms well, of, a, of a lot of your uh, follow-up data, certainly the, the registry data is registry data, and I think that's pretty uh, independent. Your, your patient satisfaction and outcome studies and some of the economics, are, are these – studies still with with folks that are designers or consultants to the company or are you starting to get more independent review and get some some eyeballs from folks that aren't involved with y'all uh, commercially oh i i would suggest that probably half of our outcome studies are done completely independent of conformance completely independent of any of the people that work directly with us uh there's a paper out of germany um that compared patient satisfaction of the eye total and we had no idea that this was even going on, um, and compared it to patient satisfaction of one of the leading um, off-the-shelf total knee replacements. And um, the, the patient satisfaction for the conformance total knee was dramatically uh, increased over that of the uh, competitive knee uh, that it was compared to. Um, so, I mean, fully half of the um, published literature Outside of the um, joint registries are, or, are by um, researchers that are not involved uh, with conformance in any way. Uh, that's excellent. And as, we, as we move to be more data driven, I think uh, I think that's important for people because you know a lot of folks. I mean, obviously, with commercial interest in these sorts of things, or can can make claims, but but data is data, and as we accumulate more of that, I think that contributes to what we all do and how we approach these things and how we think about what we're doing in knee replacement. And, and having, having worked at uh, a couple of different orthopedic companies over my 30 plus year career, um, I can, I can tell you that uh, there's a conformist phenomena where surgeons that uh, gravitate towards technology and start using uh, the product, they become zealous. Uh, they, they, they really, um, you know, for initially they conceptually understand the, the engineering behind it, the great work that, that uh, John and his team have done. And then they start to, to see the, the results in their patients and, and they become, you know, really passionate about the, about the, the technology and, and the, the product uh, to the point where I would say almost all of our uh, surgeon designers and advisors have been, um, have started out as, as users initially. And then we, you know, we slowly brought them in as as, uh, as design surgeons, simply because they they were so, um, you know, enamored and and, and uh, uh, fascinated by the technology and, and and saw the results in their patients. So let me hit y'all with a clinical question that you you, you may not feel compelled or qualified to answer. Um, is, is there who who doesn't need a custom knee replacement? If they need a knee replacement, 
who who needs something different and not this or or does that that patient exist oh that's a hard question <laughs> um we're it, keeping it you know, real it, here john yeah i know i, I know right um well we actually don't know who will benefit and who um, would not benefit from a custom knee right now. We are entering into a research program that will probably take several years for us to determine um, what patients will benefit and what patients probably won't benefit so much or at all from the total knee. And, and so uh, we, don't, we honestly don't know um, which patients don't benefit. I think that we could say that which patients would would benefit for sure is um, uh, patients that ha might have a, a higher deformity um, at, at the bone uh, surface interface. Uh, certainly, patients that have got it's an unusual, relatively unusual condition, but the, the valgus thing. There is no doubt that a, the valgus patient would. Um, absolutely benefit from the eye total. But when you get into the, you know, the, the gray zone, we don't know the answer to that. We just do not know the answer. So, so that is a, a, a definitely a very strong engineering response. Uh, what I'd like to do is, is um, <laughs> take, take it a little bit of a, of a different angle and say, you know, from the time we started and I was with the company uh, going back to the very beginning uh, of, of the uh, partial knee and total knee design back in 08, and once you start taking the handcuffs off uh, the design engineer and saying there is no limitations of what parameters you can change and how you can try to design the best possible implant you can, once you start taking away those restrictions, then something really remarkable, something magical happens. So when we started designing the, uh, the total knee system, we weren't just looking at, at matching the shape, you know, and, and, and trying to, to, to get the, the best possible implant design. So that's all, when you, when you think about it in terms of the, the implant itself, let's, let's look at the femoral component. You're looking at the outer surface, which where the, you know, the, the shape matching happens, where you're respecting that patient's normal anatomy. Then you have the inner surface, right? The inner surface is where the bone cuts happen. But because we had no restrictions and, and the engineers were really allowed to design the best possible implant, um, we were able to, to minimize the bone resections on, on the implant such that you're able to preserve as much of the, the, the native anatomy as, as possible. For example, most femoral components have five chamfer cuts. Uh, the, the conformist knee has six chamfer cuts. And the reason for that is we looked at five cuts, six cuts, seven cuts, and looked to see, you know, how can we affect the implant strength while minimizing the amount of bone that's been taken away. So we were able to, to optimize that with six cuts and take significantly less bone away. So when you think about blood loss and, and what, what bone resection means to blood loss and, and in covering the full anatomy, with, uh, with, with metal and what that means in terms of blood loss. And, and then you take that to, you know, soft tissue releases and, and when you respect anatomy, how much less soft tissue releases you have to do. All those things compounded um, have, have benefits to patients from octogenarians down to your young athletic 50-year-olds, that, that, that might 40-year-olds that might need, need a knee replacement. So I think 
uh, every patient uh, would benefit from from uh, a a total knee replacement that's personalized for them. Um, but certainly, what John says is true. Certain patients will benefit more because of the shape of their anatomy. But looking at it holistically, I think every patient out there would benefit from the, from a personalized total knee. Yeah, I, 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 you're right, Farz, and I guilty as charged. I'm the engineer. No. Uh, <laughs> I think you're both potentially right, and I think, uh, as John said, it's something that that can be studied, and if there's enough data points, you can kind of tease that out. And it's, um, you know, not everybody needs to drive a Ferrari, right? So some some patients that are are lower demand um, may not get as much benefit, uh, depending on their function, depending on on what they were like preoperatively. Um, you know, it it. It may not make as much difference as it might in another patient. But then to your point, Farzan, uh, if there's less blood loss, if there's less bone loss, uh, if they get their motion quicker and require less utilization of physical therapy resources and things like that, then there's some potential benefit there as well. So I I can see that from both sides. Um, And we'll give a little shout-out to Will Kurtz there. I think he did that study uh, about – blood loss, swelling, and uh, the fact that the system takes away less bone. Um, and I, I think that is valuable, uh, especially when you talk about a revision setting. Um, things things will wear out. They will fail. Even if you have, as you noted, John, a, a remarkably high survivorship, there will be some small percentage that will have to be revised. And, Absolutely. you know, having, having available bone stock for that is better for the patient and just gives them more options long term. Agreed. All right, so we're switching gears here. You may be off the hook with this one, John. Maybe not. This may be a Farzan question. Um, and y'all have both used it here and opened the door for me. Um, when we talk with patients about implants and they talk about sizes, things like that, I try to explain, you know, with your system, this is a custom implant. Uh, with with other conventional implants, those are made in a range of sizes. And so, if you go way back to, you know, PCA knee and some some really old designs, there were small, medium, and large. Right? I mean, it was very limited. Those have grown over the years. A lot of of systems of conventional implants now may have seven, eight, twelve. 15 different sizes of femurs so it's it's not custom but certainly there's a wide range of sizes uh, available to fit patients and I as I think you've touched on those don't necessarily match shape but they're certainly better at matching size but those conventional implants um, somebody at conformist somewhere at some point came up with the idea of labeling these as, quote, off-the-shelf implants, and that has got to be the greatest marketing coup of all time. Um, do either of you guys know the origin story of the, the quote-unquote, off-the-shelf implant? Uh, I don't. Barton? Well, there was a certain language that, that we uh, talked about and decided going back to the uh, one of our original vice presidents of marketing, John Lee, um, we, when we discussed how do we want to characterize uh, our implants and how we do we want to talk about, um, you know, uh, off-the-shelf implants, generic implants. Um, and... There was there was some some dialogue and, and some thought behind uh, how do we you know accurately depict 
uh, our implants versus uh, versus implants that are not designed uh, for each individual patient. I hope I'm not putting y'all on the spot too much with that one, but I, 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 I find it pretty humorous uh, because it, it sticks with patients. Patients that have seen any of your materials or looked this up, um, they, they, you know, I won't say they get the impression that other implant systems are just being pulled out of a junk drawer of whatever's laying around the hospital, but uh, they, they definitely, uh, that resonates with them and they have strong thoughts about it. So I, I just, I think that's a, uh, an interesting concept that that somebody on the marketing end uh, really hit a hit a home run with when they came up with that. Well, we certainly want to be accurate in, in how we uh, depict our implants and and uh, you know the implants of other companies. Um, but we we uh, we're very passionate about uh, our technology and our approach. Um, there, you know, you could you could characterize conformist as much as a software company as it is a, a Georgia placement company. Um, the, the real, the power behind what we do is data and software. Uh, and if you look at uh, in the future of uh, the company, um, in terms of uh, next generation products, uh, we're actively working on um, an implant system that's going to be, that's going to leverage uh, all the, the, uh, the historical knowledge, the, all those, those, uh, you know, over a hundred thousand implants that have been designed uh, specifically for each patient to see if we can uh, get a, a more, um, a better uh, off the shelf implant uh, product that that's limited in sizes. And, and uh, you know, if time is a factor, you can get it uh, certainly a few weeks uh, quicker. Uh, still leverages, uh, you know, the preoperative plan, personalized preoperative plan, and personalized jigs for placing that implant. But we we uh, match it using artificial intelligence and machine learning to the closest possible match to a personalized implant. And what's going to be unique about this this product is that it's going to still respect uh, the the anatomy in terms of it's not going to be symmetrical, um, but you'll be able to get it sooner and. Um, and still, you know, reap the, the most of the benefits from uh, a personalized system. I think early on, also, it's, it's worth noting uh, we certainly had uh, challenges, right? Being a small company in in uh, a, a industry that's dominated by four large players that that have uh, almost ninety percent of the market share. Um, you know, there was uh, you know active. Uh, dilution of, of our of our value proposition by, by other companies. They, they started to talk about personalized implants uh, because of uh, the jigs that they were producing. Uh, whereas we were the only company that was creating a, a personal, fully personalized implant where the actual implants were, were made specifically for that patient. And I think that's, that's a really important uh, difference that uh, um, we wanted to make sure that, that we, we, uh, position ourselves in a way that people really understood, you know, how we were different and, and what, you know, what the value proposition was for, for, for our products. So a lot of the, the genesis of, of, uh, the off the shelf branding, um, certainly dates back to that, to, to so that, that there is no dilution of our, of our, of the value that we provide in the personalized implant, uh, with, you know, with the jig that some other companies also provide. I think you've got a, a lot of great points wrapped up in there, and I think that's a, a, a neat idea uh, with this uh, potential forthcoming uh, system to have 
something that is CT based and that is uh, matched to a patient where you are using or sort of leveraging AI and some of these other technologies and, and you've got this huge uh, database of patient anatomy to know uh, what what's potentially best and what's right, uh, even if it's not a, a fully custom system. Um, and I think that also makes the point that this uh, three-dimensional planning uh, that takes place with that, um, you've got 3D printed guides that are used during the surgery and the accuracy associated with those, I think is a story that gets lost on a lot of uh, patients. I think uh, for a lot of people, they sort of wrap their heads around the idea of this custom implant that size and shape matched, but you're really bringing a lot of value with that uh, single-use, sterile, disposable uh, set of guides that are that are 3D printed for each patient. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think um, the the hot story, the the the, the, the front line the headline news uh, in orthopedics today seems to be dominated by navigation and robotics. Um, we've always touted the fact that our jigs are incredibly accurate, and um, the same technology based off the the CT imaging that goes into the uh, the software uh, that operates the the robot is the same exact uh, you know information, uh, radiographic information that we use to design our jigs to fit on the bone the same way. So we, we like to refer to it as pre-navigation. So the navigation and the benefits of, of, uh, of robotics is encapsulated in our jigs and that facilitate the placement of our personalized implants. And I think that that's, uh, um, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's just a really important point to bring up in terms of the, the jigs and the value that they, they represent. And, um, let me add this, that, so orthopedic robots have now been around for about 10 years, maybe a little longer. Um, and so far, to my knowledge, there is not a peer-reviewed publication that shows a outcome benefit uh, with a robotic installed knee compared to any other device, period. So it's a solution looking for a problem so far. <laughs> So, uh, interestingly, I, I think that, or at least I, I'm given the impression that, that the ability to do this, this, this sort of mass customization uh, technology, has been largely facilitated by 3D printing, additives manufacturing. Um, what's next? Does, does AI or machine learning or some of these other technologies uh, get you to the point of being able to produce this from... 2D imaging, maybe from x-rays instead of CT or, or some um, hybrid of something? We will be investing heavily over the coming uh, two years or so uh, in into artificial intelligence and looking at how we can exactly do that, um, improve the mass customization, and reduce the overall cost of the, of the system. So, yes. Uh, the future is so bright, uh, we need sunglasses uh, in terms of the application of, of computer technology to, to um, our business. It, I, I can't imagine what it's going to look like in five years from now, but it's going to look very different. Very well said, John. And I think the, the orthopedics industry, we need to, to think more software, more, uh, you know, how do we get 
uh, leverage data to, to improve outcomes, whether it's through predictive analytics, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning. And th- those are areas where conformance is, is uh, absolutely uh, investing heavily. Um, when, when you think about and, and, and uh, you know, talk about 2D to, to 3D imaging, um, I'm personally have, have some healthy skepticism if we, we would ever have the technology refined to the point where we could design implants. But I do think that, that we can get it to the certainly to the point where we can um, create personalized uh, some jigs and, and a preoperative plan, absolutely. And, and perhaps a, a way to be able to um, delineate and, and uh, categorize or segregate patients that would benefit I- even more from a personalized implant and then, uh, and then go down the CT pathway there. Uh, so these, these are, you're absolutely right. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. These, these are all areas that I think are going to be a very hot topic in, in orthopedics in the next five, 10 years. And in certainly areas where conformance is, uh, it's investing heavily. Awesome. Um, additionally, there, there's a, a new technology that's emerging now where, um, they're almost, portable CT devices that can be in, literally installed in a doctor's office. So we don't, you, you know, in the future, you won't need a big CT center. You won't need to send a patient to a CT center. You'll be able to do it um, in your own office and just send that CT scan to us. So that's going to be cost-reducing and time-reducing as well. Gentlemen, you've talked about a bunch of stuff, and I think we've talked about the future. Um, what else do we need to know? What what it, what is the future here? What's on your radar that you see that's exciting that's coming down the pipe here for uh, joint replacement? Oh, um, that's another challenging question. I, I think you I think you hit it, Matt. It's I mean it's the application of AI. Um, we will be looking into robotics, um, although um, there is some uh, there are there is some belief out there that with this move to um, the outpatient total knee, that uh, robotics may have a limited life. Certainly, the large, expensive robots. Um, maybe there's um, there are some emerging smaller handheld robotic technologies that um, might have a place in the outpatient surgical center. Uh, we are looking at that. We'll be in, in at least investigating that over the next 12 months or so and seeing how that would apply to us. Uh, but we do see if, if the total needs in a large way shift to the outpatient setting, the, the, the life expectancy of at least the large expensive robots, I think, is very limited. And um, that's going to need to evolve as well. Arzen, any thoughts? Well, no, I think John encapsulated that uh, extremely well. Uh, you know, we are going to continue to, to look to see what uh, areas uh, have uh, have the greatest need and the greatest opportunity for uh, technological improvement. And, and uh, you know, conformance is always taking pride in, in, in its uh, you know, kind of out-of-the-box thinking, its, its approach to uh, orthopedics and joint replacements uh, as, as a company that, that looks for unique ways to, to add value. Uh, and we, we've uh, never been one that felt uh, we needed to market our products 
to to uh, in order to to get get traction. We believe our technology speaks for itself. We um, and we're going to continue to look for for ways to leverage uh, our core identity uh, of, of data and and uh, um, software to see how we can add value and and uh, help uh, patients recover more quickly and and uh, have. Uh, have better outcomes and, and, and hopefully improve their, their quality of life. It's all about patients and surgeons. Gentlemen, uh, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, Conformus is, uh, is an exciting idea and exciting technology. It's been, uh, it's been helpful, useful, and exciting in my practice over the last couple of years uh, on a personal level. And uh, I thank you all for coming on and uh, sharing with our audience a little bit about that. Thank you very much, Matt. Have a great day. Thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you.